This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. Go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, there's black Bibles in the seats there. That's our gift to you. Just take that home and enjoy that. But Ephesians chapter 4 is where I want to invite you to turn uh, this morning. I'm curious if you guys experienced what I did growing up, if you, if you grew up in church. I know many of you didn't grow up in church, and um, I, I love that, that you are now a part of the body of Christ here. Um, but for me, it, it seemed like on any given Sunday in church that I would... Um, it would be emphasized to me why we weren't like the church down the road. <laughs> Anybody ever ex- experienced that kind of thing? And it was, it was almost like in, in our attempt to understand who we were, it kind of went like this. We're not like them, and 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 we're not like them. And, and, and then I just began to discover kind of this weird thing that pastors do. Uh, I was blessed with a lot of great mentors, but I would find myself like around, you know, a mentor, and I would mention something cool that was going on in a church down the road, or I would have a question about the church over here, and and often the response that I got was, um, well, they're not really serious about discipleship there, (laughs) or they really don't have spirit-filled worship there, you know, or, or fill in the blank what's wrong with that church. And, uh, and, and so what happened was, over time, uh, my heart and attitude was polluted toward other gospel-preaching churches. And um, so, so I would feel threatened by other churches. I would be skeptical of other churches. Um, I would always be looking for what other churches were doing wrong. And, and along the way... I began to discover there was a better and more beautiful way. I, I went on a mission trip to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I had a translator named Gustavo. And Gustavo was a part of a completely different denomination than what I was a part of. And he was my translator. So the way this would go down is I would preach a sentence and then he would translate it in Portuguese. I would preach a sentence, and then he would translate it in Portuguese. And then when we got really good, I'd preach four sentences, and he'd translate all four of them in Portuguese. And he was, he was preaching more passionately than I was half the time. And, uh, and I was struck by his willingness to translate my sermon to people that needed to hear it. Because I didn't experience that growing up in, in Tennessee. I experienced more of a skepticism, division, we're not like that. We're not that. So I experienced that in my young 20s in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and then I began to read the Bible more and more, and I realized, oh, like in the Bible there's this beautiful picture of, no, we are them, and we are them, and we are them, and we are them, and and we are them. In other words, the sacred scriptures paints a beautiful picture for us of a unified church. And I want you to see that this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to pick it up uh, in verse 4. Um, and so here's, here's, the, here's the message this morning is that um, 
We, we don't have to find ourselves competing, comparing, envying, feeling jealous, feeling threatened, feeling suspicious, huddling up with only people who think and process information like we do when it comes to the church. There is a better and more beautiful way. And, and, and the big idea of what the better and more beautiful way that we're going to see in Ephesians 4 is this. Unity woven together with diversity leads to maturity. Unity woven together with diversity leading to maturity. So let's look at this with, uh, together in Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verse 4 together. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the, to the church at Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. In verse 4 he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray in Jesus' name you'd speak personally and powerfully to us through your sacred scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Unity woven together with diversity leading to maturity. That's the message this morning. And we see first unity because God and the things of God are one. God and the things of God are one. Look at verse 4 with me in, 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 in your copy of the scriptures. There is one body and one spirit. So we just pause there. That goes against a little bit of kind of what I, what I thought I was being emphasized. When I was growing in my faith as a young Christian, we're not them and we're not them and we're not them and we're not them. Wait a second, we are one body. So wouldn't it be a little more accurate to say we, we are them? They're preaching the gospel, we are them, one body. We are them, one spirit. Well, he goes on to, to, to drive home this image of of unity and oneness. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I love the word hope. Hope is so relevant to all people in all places at all times. Everybody needs hope because hope shines brightest in the backdrop of suffering. And every one of us suffer. To be a human is to suffer. And what Paul is teaching us is that our hope is the same as that church's hope 
and that church is hope, and that church is hope. That God's not done, that God sees us, that he loves us, that he's working even in the midst of suffering. That God has a plan, that he doesn't waste a moment, not a minute, not a day of suffering. We have a hope. We have a hope that Jesus is going to return and the Bible says that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's our hope, that Christ is coming back. He's going to make a whole new heavens and earth. It's going to be beautiful and all the pain and suffering that we experience now is going to be gone. It's going to be gone. For the Christian, the worst day on earth is the closest to hell we will ever get. That's the hope that we have. And every gospel-preaching church has the same hope. So we might be tempted to say, explain all the reasons why we're different than them. But Paul seems interested in explaining all the reasons why we're like them. One body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to your call. Look at verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, how do, we, how do we bring together this idea of unity with sound doctrine? In, in other words, in, in, chapter, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, ra- rather, let me see, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. This is what Paul says. He says, keep a close watch on your life and teaching. So the doctrine, what you're teaching, keep a close watch on it. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pretty important. And then consider that the vast majority of New Testament letters were written and somehow to address false teaching. In other words, when we read through the Bible, what we see is that sound doctrine, remaining true to teaching, and rebuking false doctrine is really, really important. So how do we bring this idea together that, that sound doctrine and unity hold together. Uh, we see this, this, this picture of unity all throughout the scripture. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, in John 17, he's praying that the church would be unified. So how do we hold this together? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and they were all caught up in these divisions where they were arguing about who the best preacher was. Some were saying Paul was. Some were saying Apollos was. And Paul wrote and he said, look, Paul's nothing. Apollos is nothing. Jesus is everything. Why are you arguing about that? So you, so you have these two themes in Scripture of sound doctrine and unity. How do we hold those together? I want to submit to you this idea of a theological triage. Most of you know the, the, the word triage and what that's about. Um, our soldiers would tell you if they're out at war and they break their wrist, but another one of their fellow soldiers has a, um, a life-threatening injury, um, they're going to triage that, and the soldier who's bravely defending our freedoms that has the life-threatening injury, they're going to tend to him first. They're going to take care of him first. If you walked into the ER this afternoon holding your heart, <laughs> You're going to be seen a lot quicker than the guy that walks in holding his elbow, right? Why? Because they're triaging. They're identifying what's most important. Now, you may think, well, isn't all the Bible important? Yes, capital I important, exclamation point, exclamation point. All the Bible's important. But all the Bible 
is not equally important. Some of you are like, Pastor, that sounds a little off. Well, consider this. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, Brothers, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, that which is of first importance. Paul writing to the church emphasizes that there is a doctrine, there is a teaching that's first importance. In other words, there are some doctrines that are second and third and fourth importance. There's one thing that's the most important, and it's the gospel. And so what I submit to you this morning is that, is that the way that we passionately contend for the, for the faith, as the book of Jude tells us to do, and maintain the unity of the church, is by applying a theological triage to where you have first-tier doctrines in this triage to say these are the most important, the, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, most important. We have to be unified. If you're going to be considered a Christian, we have to be unified in this. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, absolutely critical to understand we're a part of the family of God. When Jesus is coming back in the timing of end times, not first here. Hey, here's, here's what I've experienced and maybe some of you experienced this, is that people will attach to particular doctrines emotionally and then express that in an unhealthy way. So they'll fall in love with this particular doctrine, it'll become everything to them, and then it'll cause arguments and division and skepticism and alienation as they express how passionate they are about those kinds of doctrines. So you take one like, like the end times. Now, most of you would say, okay, pastor, are you, like, when we leave, are you passing out the sheet that has all the doctrines and they're all perfectly triaged? That would be nice, right? No, I think the way the Lord wants us to apply this is the way he wants us to live most of the Christian life. We want all of life to be black and white. Thou shall not murder. Got it. Easy. Not easy for some of us. Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart for your brother, you've committed murder in your heart, right? Not so easy, right? The majority of the Christian life is to be lived out of wisdom and discernment. So it's not just give me the list and let me check the boxes. No, it's give me God and let me walk with him. And as I walk with him, I grow in wisdom and discernment. And when those issues become difficult to know, is this worth dividing over? The Holy Spirit gives me wisdom to triage. What are those doctrines that we cling to most passionately? And then what are those other doctrines that we welcome diversity? Diversity. We celebrate even diversity. That leads us to the, to, to the, next, to the next idea, diversity. So unity because God and the things of God are one, but diversity because God has diversely gifted his church and leadership in his church. So look at verse 7 with me. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. Let me just stop there. What's the first word of verse 7? But. So, so Paul is conversely saying something here that he's already said. So go back to verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. And he's like, I'm going to drive this point home. One Lord, one hope, 
one faith, one baptism, one God. It's like Paul just pushes repeat. <laughs> it's all unified, unified, unified. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Unity, don't miss it, Paul says. But, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, when you turn to Jesus away from your sin to trust in him as your Lord and Savior, you you receive the Spirit of God into your life. And God filled you with his Spirit, and he gave you spiritual gifts, and he intended for you to use those spiritual gifts in the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ. And he didn't give all of us the same kinds of gifts. He gave us diversity of gifts. So we're not like each other. And so immaturity would be to be threatened by our differences. They're weird. The way they do that, the way they say that, she's always doing this. He's always doing this. I don't know. He's got a way about him. You know why he's got a way about him? Because God made him that way. Usually. Some of us are unnecessarily annoying. I grant that, right? I grant that. But the majority of our differences is God's beautiful design. That's why I'm saying there's a better and more beautiful way. And the, more better and be- the better and beautiful way is to recognize how God made us. He made us different with different gifts. And we see that in the scripture. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? So Jesus came to the earth, he lived, he fulfilled his ministry, he died, he rose again, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit, and in sending the Holy Spirit, he gave gifts. I know those few verses are a little wordy, and it's hard to track, and I just tried to break it down for you. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Look at verse 11. Here he gets specific about describing that diversity that he, get, that he gave to his church in church leadership. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave them to who? He gave them to the church. Why did he give them? He gave them, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So does that word equip sound familiar? We got, it, we got it written on everything around here. We got it rolling on the screens. It's because it's one of our values here at Real Life, equip and empower. So here's where, here's where the North American church often gets it wrong is they see church as you have these paid professionals and they're going to put on a Christian product and we're going to come Sunday morning and we're going to consume that Christian product. That's not this equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. It, that's, that's like consumeristic Christianity. And there's nothing powerful about that, and there's nothing beautiful about that. But God's plan is to send his spirit, to fill his believers, to gift his church with leaders. Leaders of the church are gifts, the pastors, teachers, the prophets, evangelists. He gifts his, his church with leaders so that the leaders might equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's not the paid professional's job to do the ministry. (laughs) It's our church staff's job to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's really hard to do. (laughs) It's not easy to do. You know why? Because everybody is capital B-U-S-Y busy. 
Billy Graham once said, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And if you're, listen, if you're too busy to serve in your local church, then you're too busy, period. Why? Because God's purpose for you is that he gave you gifts to build up the body of Christ. That's his design. That's his desire. That's his dream for you. It's for you to use these gifts in ministry so that you're praying for others and encouraging others and serving others. Just, just this Sunday morning, back row, can you tell that this screen is higher? Can you tell? The screen today is on these boxes that are like two feet high so that you on the back row, when we're standing and singing, you can see the screens. Now, some of you, you didn't even notice that. You know why you didn't notice it? Because you could see the words. But somebody this week, after weeks of building these giant blocks here to put these on here, somebody built those. And other people set up the screen and put it on there. Why? So that the body of Christ could, could flourish. I, like, if I was building that box, we'd still be working on it. Can I get an amen? When Susan and I got married, she had a toolbox. I didn't. Diversity. That's what that is. It's diversity. Do you, do you see that? So, so let's look back at the scriptures and let's see God unfold this for us. So he says he, he gave to the church, he gave apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. So you see this beautiful diversity. I often hear people talk about this euphoric moment of joining a community group and finding their soul sister who's at the exact same season of life that they are. And it often goes something like this, she can finish my sentences and she understands me completely. That's fun, isn't it? We call that chemistry. Those relationships happen in chemistry. But here as we see this picture of diversity woven together in unity, we're not necessarily seeing chemistry. In, in other words, what I submit to you this morning is that is that rather than finding a group where everybody is just like me in the same season of me, sameness, it's beautiful. When we find a group and we find people that we generally have nothing alike, and rather than the relationship being easy, it's difficult. It's difficult to understand their burdens, and it's difficult to understand where they are, but we do it not because chemistry is present, but because there is a covenant relationship with the people of God that we've leaned into. Just as God has entered into a covenant with his people, we too have entered into a covenant with God's people. So we're not looking for the relationships necessarily that are easy, although don't ditch her just because it's easy. Just thank God that it's easy. But there's something beautiful when we lean in to somebody that's really, really different than we are. And we seek to know them and we seek to understand their fears and their hopes and their dreams. And we partner with them and we pray with them and we encourage them and we involve ourselves in their life. Listen, there's something better and beautiful in its covenant relationship leaning in when it's difficult and different. Listen, this isn't like a rigid absolute. Don't hear that. And like we shouldn't be in search for the most difficult relationships. No, that's just silly. What I'm saying to you is, is what the world sells us of sameness is not what God teaches us. God teaches something better and something more beautiful, and it's diversity woven together with unity. And when we step into that, God says it's beautiful. Why, why would we want to do that, maturity? 
maturity. Why would we want to embrace diversity? Because to not do so is childish. It's childish. Look at this with me in verses 7 through 12. Rather, look at it with me in verses 13 through 16. 13 through 16. So he says, God gave all these leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. What's the opposite of maturity? Well, my middle school daughter would say my 10-year-old son is immature, right? He's so immature, right? And when we are skeptical of those that are different than us and we don't step into diversity with a spirit of love and when we don't assume the best in one another just because they're different than us in the way they express their faith in Jesus, we're immature. (laughs) And God has something more beautiful and better. Look at it with me. He says, to mature manhood... To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. God does not want us to stay in a perpetual state of childhood. So so how do we get out of spiritual childhood? Well, we embrace diversity within the body of Christ. We don't put others down to make us feel better about what we're doing. That's what I think pastors do all the time. You mention this church and somebody says, well, they're not good at this. Why are you saying that? Like, why do you even say that if it's not to make you feel better about what you're doing? And like, it just doesn't make sense. Just celebrate what they're good at. Do you see it, church? So, so it's, it's maturity when we step in and celebrate the strengths of other Christians and other churches. Um, look at it with me. Paul goes on. He says, rather, ra- rather, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So there you see growth. So you've got maturity. You've got not being a child. You've got growth. We are to grow up to him in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in Love. Listen, God's desire for each one of us is to grow, to grow in maturity, to grow out of spiritual childhood into spiritual adulthood. And we find this, that unity woven together with diversity leads to maturity. We celebrate differences within the body of Christ. We cling to the gospel. The gospel is critically important. The Apostle Paul in Galatians said, if anybody comes to you not preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. So the gospel, Paul said, is the most important thing, and you can't get the gospel wrong. We cling to the gospel, and then we celebrate some of these second tier and third tier issues. We celebrate when there's a diversity here. Um, It may not surprise you, I don't know, but in West Tennessee, um, there's churches that are really skeptical to an emphasis on God's sovereignty and salvation. And this can be like a really uh, passionate, emotionally charged issue for a lot of people. And so much so, in churches in West Tennessee, if you preached from the English version of the Bible that I'm preaching from, they would raise an eyebrow. Because this well-known preacher who believes this particular doctrine or emphasizes it this way preaches from that version. This is a word-for-word English translation of the Bible. There's a better way. There's a more beautiful way. Several years ago, I went and pastored a church in Arizona. 
And you can imagine, I'm showing up to a new church, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm preaching from the ESV. Are they going to be like the people in West Tennessee that, like, they're really skeptical about a word-for-word English translation of the Bible? I was nervous. Didn't know. Didn't didn't know. And um, there's these four guys in that church in Arizona, and they went to lunch every Thursday together. Every Thursday together. And every Thursday, they would pick a topic, Bible topic. They would debate it. 20 minutes, and then eat lunch together. And, and two of these guys were at polar ends of the spectrum, opposite ends of the spectrum, on what they believed about the nature of God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. And they were best friends. And they went to lunch every Thursday. And they didn't allow their differing on this second-tier, third-tier doctrine to divide them. They allowed it to sharpen them. All right, let's debate it, but let's debate it in love. All right, let's debate it, but let's debate it assuming the best in one another. The Bible says as one, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, and that's what they committed to. They're like, hey, you believe this about that. I believe this about that. Theologians have been debating this for thousands of years, so why don't we just keep being best friends (laughs) and keep going to church together? Is there, is there ever a reason to divide over a doctrine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, do we usually get it right? I don't think so. <laughs> I, think, I, think we, I think we usually don't apply wisdom. And we remain childish. And we feel threatened by differences. In church, there's a better and more beautiful way. And I think the Lord's going to lead us into it as we walk with him. I think he's going to grow us into a beautiful, diverse church that's unified in the gospel. We keep it real, and we what? We keep it Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus who, in our sin, we made ourselves his enemy, and yet he pursued us in his love. Thank you for pursuing us, Lord. Father, we pray you would protect our unity in 2023. We pray you would grow our unity in 2023. We pray you'd give us increased diversity in 2023, and you'd give us the wisdom to know how to celebrate it. We'll give you the glory for all of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand to our feet. Let's close out by singing this great hymn, Because He Lives. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.